1: That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the Filet-O-Fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But right now it's time for Gene Shepard. And, you know, generally I don't like to repeat programs that I've played in the past because there are so many that we have never heard. But this one was last broadcast on these airwaves three years ago and a little more. So, uh, hey, and you know, the the good folks at Fathead Central don't have it in their catalog, so obviously they missed this one. So here's their chance, too, and yours as well. And you can go to flicklives.com. Look at the top of the page. You'll see a link to the photos of MD's Folly. That's part of the theme of this morning's show. Also, uh, about a visit to the chaplain. Go see the chaplain, MD's Folly, from May 5th, 1966. Gene Shepard here on Mass Backwards, WBAI, New York, in the brand new cassette player. Ooh, I hope it works.
0: I will award a brass fig with a bronze oak leaf palm. And uh, that reminds me, in just a few moments, we have a very special little note uh, for the benefit of those of you who are students of mankind. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we have a little special note for those of you who are students of mankind in just a few moments. For those of you who are interested in uh, fig leaves of one kind or another, symbolic or otherwise. And uh, we'll carry that. Uh, uh, I will award the brass fig with bronze oak leaf palm to any of you out there who can define the word glunts. You ever heard the expression glunts? Ever heard anybody say that? Glunts. Now, it has several spellings. the most common G-L-U-N-T-Z or G-L-U-N-T-S. Kind of like that last phrase there. Yes, indeed. I once was told that right to my very own face by a Presbyterian chaplain. Yeah. Looked me right in the eye. I, I went in his tent, had a big, you know, the thing in the front, there, a little guy with a, with a wind-up organ. I went to see, I only went once to see the chaplain when I was in the army, just once. And I went in there, and uh, I was really bugged, you know. I was sitting down there on the bunk, and, and everything was sort of really sneaking up. You know how things will sneak up on you. You hear things in the weeds, and and, uh, you see little, uh, flickering flashes up there in the sky and, and, uh, the, the insufferable forces of life are beginning to creep up on you on a snake's belly. And, uh, finally I'm sitting there on the edge of the bunk and I said, oh, oh my God, I got my head in my hands and I'm sitting there, oh boy, blah, 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 blah. I'm yelling and hollering. And finally Gasser down at the other end of the barracks says, ah, oh, hey, Shep. And I says, yeah, what do you want? So why don't you go, go see the chaplain, Mac. Well, in the Army, that's a put-down. Uh, nobody really seriously does. <laughs> he says, what? Take it, go, go see the chaplain. I said, "The for a second, you know, by George, I think I will. I think just maybe I will. Would you please give me a little uh, seeing the chaplain music, please? That's right. And so I dragged my you-know-what down along the company street, raising dust as I went, Yeah, I dragged it down that company street, past the orderly room, past the day room, and out into the crisp, cold, unfriendly sunshine of life, as I wended my weary, unhappy way towards the chaplain's tent, looking for solace, looking for sympathy, looking for just a smidgen of love, looking for who knows what. This is, Shepherd is on his way to the chaplain music. Very good, Corny, that was excellent. Well, ten minutes later, I'm admitted to the tent of the chaplain. There's this little skinny kid standing up in the front there. I, I have never once seen a, uh, a drama on television or in the movies about that type of soldier. You know the kind of soldier that plays the organ for the chaplain? That's a, have, you ever, have you ever in the army, Don no, Courtney? Well, did you, did you know that there are guys like that? They have little, little uh, rimless glasses. And they have a very uh, official, supercilious air as though they are in touch with the infinite. They have got a direct pipeline to G O D and also to the chaplain, which in many cases is synonymous. I mean, you know, and and so they sit in the front there of the of the tent and they're wearing their PFC stripes and everything is very pressed on these guys all the time. They look very clean. That clean, scrubbed look. You know the scrubbed look of righteousness? Of uh you seen that. We've all We've all faced that look. Oh, I'll tell you, know that look of the of the eye that looks right at you and says, "Well, it serves a sinner right." Oh, you know, you're, 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 and he has that look, you know, that just but wonder it's you know he's he's God's little raindrop uh, right here down on the earth with us, and he's sitting there by his little folding GI. OD covered organ and he's admitting the victims in one by one to see the chaplain and he rejects other guys too of course he has the ability to reject too if you come then he doesn't like your looks and figures you're just a little too much of a sinner I mean, you know, a rotten sinner. Well, he just sends you back to the company area there and maybe you'll pick up a few days of KP for your sins. But, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting in line there. Yeah. I don't know why I got started on this story of, uh, of religious life in the army. You know, I'm, I'm there to see the chaplain. Now I figured that if I saw the chaplain, I could wrangle a three day pass out of him. I figured if I could get away from the area for a while, if I could split out of this camp I was in for about three days and lay in a couple of beers, And to visit a few people I knew and make a few judicious phone calls. And to go to a few places that I knew about going to, maybe I would come back with a spring in my step, you know, singing happy songs, ready to go. But you can't quite tell the chaplain that story. See, so you have to come in dragging you-know-what behind you with a little cloud of dust flying behind you, you know. That look of the man who was at the breaking point. Well, I sit down in front of the chaplain, and he had these round, this round, again, a scrubbed face. He had that clear look, rimless glasses. He parted his hair in the middle, and I uh, sat there with that uh, that look of the man. I don't know how to express it, that look of the man. Now, he was like the PFC in the front there by the Oregon Square. And he sat there and looked at me for a long while, and I'm telling him my story, and I'm playing it all the way. You know, I'm an old, I'm an old method sufferer. I suffer from inside, and uh, a good sufferer, like a good Stanislavski actor, can reach hidden depths. He can dredge it out of his soul. I'm... <laughs> I was sitting there today in the nice mess hall and. <laughs> And I, I'm talking away there, and I'm just, you know, I'm just ringing it out. I can just feel the scene. Any good actor can feel the scene. He knows when he's milking it. He can just feel it. There's the excitement that begins to come out, and the tears are actual, real, live crocodile tears are pouring down my suntan cheeks, and uh, my my corporal stripes there are are damp with uh, with the tears of humanity. and I'm crying away, and he's looking at me, and after a long pause, I said, Well, I'm so happy, I finish my story. He looks at me and he says, Hmm. Well. Hmm. Well. I don't know whether I can say this on the radio, what he said. Remember, he was not only a chaplain. He was in the army. And there are certain army phrases. And this army phrase consisted of two letters. The first one of which is a T. He shrugged his shoulders as well. Baha, baha. Baha. Uh, send the next one in, uh uh Charlie And I stood up. I said, Is that all? I said, <laughs> yep. And I, I saw a sudden flicker in his eye. And it, it was it was very, very how shall I put it? It was a, it was a moment of great revelation to me. A little flicker in his eye that he was looking for a chaplain to go tell his problems to. And that once he got to that chaplain, that chaplain would look at him with the same look in the eye of a man who was looking for a chaplain for to tell his troubles to. It kind of goes to infinity. This little fat man with the little cross on his collar and he looks at me and says, hm, what are you gonna do? Yes, yes, sir. I saluted and he gives me a limp Presbyterian slash Methodist slash Baptist slash uh, Roman Catholic salute, just and back out in the sunlight I go, that sun hanging over me, and I knew that there are some things you gotta fight out yourself. And I I walked past the that PFC sitting there, his little folding organ in the front of the tent. He's sitting there with that snotty look of a guy who's in touch with the Ten Commandments. And not only is in touch with the Ten Commandments, he feels that he had something to do with maybe perhaps uh, co-authorship rights. And uh, he's sitting there looking up at me, and I look at him. And a little brief moment of looking, and then he says, uh, Want me to punch your card, Mac? And I utter one of the old, ageless army phrases, that the yardbirds who followed Hannibal's elephants must have said from time to time. He says, yeah. <laughs> and he looks back into the tent where another sufferer, another penitent, was sitting in front of the little round man with the rimless glasses, getting solace. From man's ills. Is there anybody out there who's had his card punched recently? I was once in a company, uh, briefly, that actually, it's the only company I ever saw that did this, and there must have been others, that actually issued cards. Literally. Somebody had a little printing press down in the supply room, and he printed them up. And everybody in this company had a little card marked with those two famous letters and little places for chaplains to endorse on the back various indignities that are heaped on us. You know. Hey, I'll, I'll award you Brass figleggy, any of you ex out there, if you can... Uh, uh, if you can tell me what that card was known as. <laughs> it was just, it was just a general phrase. It, did anybody identify what the glunts are? Did anyone uh, attempt to? Well, I'm going to tell you what the glunts are. And you'll find this a a great, all-purpose, usable, I, I mean truly, a uh, genuinely formidable phrase. This is the kind of phrase that is purely functional. I think that uh, certain languages which spring out of the people are more, perhaps richly endowed than the more formal languages. Uh, Not really slang, but it's the language of the walking around people. And I'll tell you how the word glunts is to be used, and perhaps you will understand better the word itself, if I illustrate a scene. See it's six o'clock in the morning, got it? It's a cold six o'clock in the morning, a gray rotten. Cold, drizzly, six o'clock in the morning, and uh, the crud is floating down out of the air, you know it's a nothing day. One of those, one of those days that is eminently forgettable. Uh, the kind of day that, the instant you start it, you've already forgotten it, and you're starting on Wednesday already, and here it is Tuesday. You know, it's gone, and uh, ten minutes after the day is over, it's like it never happened. And so it's 6 o'clock in the morning, it's a gray day, and the wind is howling under the eaves. And uh, my old man, you can hear him waking up in the next room there. He wakes up, and the first thing he does is light his cigarette. That's the first thing I'd hear. I'd hear the sound of, of him swearing because he couldn't find his cigarettes. He's looking for cigarettes. Oh, All right, he staggers through the darkness over to the dresser. And he grabs his cigarettes and he lights one. He stuffs it in his mouth and he he smokes it for ten minutes without realizing he's smoking he's smoking the filter tip end. You know he just it's it's sitting there smoking in the dark. He's got to go to work, and now he is in the kitchen, see, and he is sitting down there, and in front of him is the lumpy oatmeal. The wind is howling through the eaves. And he's got that white look, that crummy, rotten white look of a guy who bowls last night and went out with the boys after bowling and spent a couple of hours at the Bluebird Tavern, knocking down a few and yelling and hollering and smoking 17 packs of cigarettes and seven cigars and chewing four cuds of tobacco. And now he's sitting in there. Ah, he opens his mouth. and You can see little people walking over his tongue. Little people wearing overshoes and carrying pitchforks and shoveling some obscene material around, you know. Ah, there. Oh, boy. Oh boy, have I got a case of the glunts this morning. There it is. The glunts is not a hangover, friend, so don't think that the glunts is a hangover. The glunts is a Midwestern word. Specifically, a Northern Indiana word for those anonymous, shifting, misty, rotten feelings you get. You know when your back hurts a little bit and you just feel crummy. You know and you can't see good and you blink your eyes a little bit and, and you you feel like if you have one more spoon of oatmeal, it's going to go ah. You know the whole thing. It's just a rotten feeling. Now that rotten feeling. Is a specific disease in the Midwest. It's called the Glunts. You got a case of the Glunts. Speaking of uh, indefinable diseases, that reminds me. This is WOR AM and FM New York. Two hundred ninety years. Two hundred ninety years. The people of Chinzano make this is definable. a good commercial. Two hundred and ninety people are making themselves a crazy working day and night crazy. with no time and a half and By no Zano. espresso breaks. All of this, so Cinzana sweet of a moot would add a little something to mix the drinks. Yes, and our people had to go and let a Frenchman make Cinzana oh, dry vermouth because they knew in their tired, miserable hearts <laughs> that the French <laughs> grapes were dry. A tired a miserable so, hearts. So. the Italians didn't call all our people are for this. The names. The dirty words. Two hundred and ninety years. Two hundred and ninety years of making a fine <laughs> vermouth. And what do you know about Chinzano? That we make ashtrays. Americans. That's not nice. Reported <laughs> by Sheflin and Co. New York. <laughs> I like that commercial. Chinzano.
1: And this is uh, WBAI for 270 years, WBAI in New York.
0: Oh, I like Cinzano, just a little bitters and, you know, a little twist of lemon. That's the dark Cinzano, a little twist of lemon, little bitters, you know, a little ice cube floating around there, and you stare up at that fly speck light bulb, long, honest, piercing stairs, and you sip your chins on, though. Oh, speaking of long piercing stairs, we've got a couple of commercials here. Let's see. Uh, what uh, Give me my uh, bazoo here. Uh, what uh, men's clothing store doesn't carry a single suit in stock and still offers you the widest possible selection? Of course, it's Woolmouth. As uh, one of my more rotten listeners uh, asked the other day, Shepherd, is your, is your suit Woolmouth and a yard wide? <laughs> Oh my primitive humor. All of Wilmoth and the yard line. Woolmouth, W O H L M U T H. And they make great suits, and they're custom made to measure. And they'll fit you. Even if you're pear shaped, if you're if you're apple strudel shaped, no matter what. If you're uh, what are those things? Avocados. Yeah. That's a sexy fruit, man. Woolmouth, W O H L M U T H. Woolmouth and uh, you'll find them listed under their tailors in your yeller book. In Astoria, there's a Wilma store at 3143 Steinway Street. Ask for Nathan. In Newark, at 52 Market Street. Ask for Louie. And we have with us here. You, you got another little whoopee in there? All right, hit it. Come on, Corny. Let's... We're going to lead him down to hell, boys. Wine, drink, song. The bright,
1: clear, tasting beer. The champagne yeah, of bottled
0: up. beer. <laughs> That's Miller Highlight. <laughs> Sound is about famous Miller High Life beer that has soared in popularity yeah. because millions more recognize the traditional quality and heritage of an unequaled unchanging, truly great beer. Wherever people are living cheddar. better, you'll find Miller High Life in handy take-home cans, yeah. on tap, or in the familiar crystal clear bottles. Next time you want the very finest look in the ass tonight, for don't Miller I High Life. The champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling. Distinctive. How? Right oh, very good, very good. Let's get another one of these commercials out of the way here. Yes, sir. Hey, do I sound different tonight? Anybody? Do I sound sneakier tonight than I usually do? Do I sound with a little more touch of the rotten in me? A little more decadent than usually? I've got I've got to watch that. No, I really must watch that. Uh, do you have some nice, quiet, sweet music to play behind me? Something like Hearts and Flowers. What's this say? Uh, oh, I'm in bad taste. He says that man is in bad taste. <laughs> All right. Well, so much of life is, fellow. That's the way it is. Life itself is in bad taste. We have uh, also here Rover. <laughs> Uh, you know, the truth. i tell you, if you really tell a story the way it really happens, people are all offended. In almost every instance. You have to say that I walked out of the tent, the tent of the chaplain, with my head high. I walked out after talking to these two noble God creatures, walking out with my head high, my stomach flat, with new and renewed hope. You never have to admit the way it really was. And I'm sorry, fella. Life is in bad taste itself. Uh, oh, speaking of it, oh, we have Rover here. Uh, no connection between bad taste and Rover, of course. We have Rover here, which is a magnificent English car. And uh, as you know, there's a certain doggedness about the British. There's a certain determination about the British to excel. They have got it. There's a little bug in the British that, no one has ever been able to quite define, but they've got it. Uh, most Englishmen, as a matter of fact, will define excellence as an English quality. They define the excellence as something that the English invented. And if you want to understand why, I would suggest you consult with your rover dealer. They make a magnificent automobile that's been around for many, many... You know, the rover's one of the oldest cars in the world. They were building rovers before the turn of the century. Of course, in those days, they called them collies. But uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. The listeners can call me Woolmouth in a yard wide. Right? I can. It's the Woolmouth. I mean, it's the Rover 2000 TC magnificent English car. Now, let us get back to real life. Oh, speaking of getting back to real life. Now, don't forget, we'll be at the limelight Saturday. Oh, and and yes, uh, one more word of warning. If you tune in, uh, I think a few minutes of our show Saturday is going to be cut short on uh, on radio. So if you tune in and somebody's uh, giving you a speech or something, just be calm. Old Shep will be around very shortly from the limelight. And, and for those of you who are coming to the limelight Saturday night, you come down at the regular time. The show will start. We won't be on the air for a few minutes, but the show will be going on at the limelight itself. I'm uh, preparing a special show that involves a a tremendous amount of pantomime and a Greek chorus. I have a Greek chorus already hired. It's not easy to find that many Greeks uh, these days who can work in unison and uh, who know some of the classical verities that I'm attempting to illustrate in this magnificent tableau, which we are going to have down at the Limelight Saturday night. Unfortunately, it's all done in pure meme. There will be no sound. So, if you tune in, and for the first half hour, our program is totally silent, with just an occasional gasp of breath, uh, because there's many moments in my magnificent performance that are breathless, uh, you'll find that you are listening to the first broadcast of a meme performance. Fantastic thing. It's uh, It has to do with the death of Electra and the resurrection of Orestes. Fantastic piece of business. And uh, I do it in costume. I have this green costume. That I had made it's a plastic costume it's very nice it's a special if you've seen this stuff uh it uses a uses the infrared lighting corny a special lighting and it lights up and it glows well it's a green costume that glows and I play a naiad uh and at another point in my performance I play the forest god and in the third part I play pan rampant it's fantastic just fantastic and uh I don't know whether the public's ready for it or the police department either, for that matter. But, you know, these are days that not only try men's souls, but are trying all the various laws. So, uh, everything's moving. So we'll see you down at the limelight. Okay, gang, crowd? Speaking of various laws, would you bring out a little more whoopee there, just a little bit? This is your favorite good-taste station. Bring it up there. Hey, cha cha I'm so sorry I hurt your itty-bitty feelings. I'm so sorry. E, poor up as i it up. Oh, you want to hear the story of MD? All right, I suspect there would be a sore head or two in the crowd out there. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know whether I should tell this story because there's a lot of people who are right now embarked in their own little private folly anyway and uh, we can ruffle a lot of feelings you want to hear the story of uh, Melvin M.D.'s folly Uh, All right. would you please uh, Courtney before we do that uh, if we can get the the young lady's attention in there for just a moment young lady uh, young lady uh, we have a young lady who's in charge of uh, organ clarion blasts Uh, young lady would you please provide me uh, out of my 50 unbelievable moments of music You, you have that there Uh, Put the phone down and you do it quick. Don't mess around with them. That's it. No. All right. Now, do you have, do you have, uh, if if you don't have that, do you have in the, perhaps you may have the informer suite. I think that's kind of good. Oh, wait, I know something even better than that. How about uh, El Capitan? That's very good. I think that's uh, got a certain stature. Yes. Uh, would you please? That's that's my folly music. That's very good. Excellent. Excellent. It's got plenty of piccolos in it, a couple of flutes in there, good bass section. All right. Bring it on there. Entrance of the gods into Valhalla. The entrance of the gladiators into the arena. Please bring it on. That's fun. Uh, that's excellent. This is music to construct a folly by. With your insane turrets rising into the air, higher and higher, <laughs> with pennants flying, <laughs> and with no closets, <laughs> and someone forgot to build into this fantastic 4,500 room folly any Johns. Bring it up. You see, friends, the essence of a true folly is its consummate impracticability, its uh, almost insane insistence on bringing a dream, or more closely, perhaps, a nightmare, to fruitful realization. And so tonight Saluting everywhere, the follies that be, the follies that are. The old shepherd's singing good here tonight, and I, I know some lyrics to that too that I'm sure that that young man would find in bad taste. So much of life is. I wonder how he stands walking along Sixth Avenue, up to his bloomin' knickers, in bad taste. <laughs> Oh, well, well, I'll tell you. uh, Melvin M.D.'s folly brings back so many ridiculous memories. And it also uh, brings back to me uh, the image of the rise and fall of the Bodkin family, which is closely connected with the rise and fall of the M.D. family. Now, uh, as we mentioned last night, in fact, uh, we left you hanging on the cliff last night, right there next to our house when I was but an urchin. Freshly moved to northern Indiana, with the wind blowing through those those hard blue skies of the northern Indiana lake country, and you could hear the sound of the blast furnaces gasping and steaming off in the distance, and the open hearths belching. Open hearths always belch, you know. Oh, that is when bad writers write about open hearths. Guys who've never been near an open—I never heard an open hearth an open hearth belch. I've heard them do other things, which are kind of in bad taste, but never belch. Now, again, don't call up and say I'm in bad taste. It's a very good word. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, uh, problems that Alka-Seltzer will take care of. Uh, the, 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 the thing I'm talking about, no, has to do with the great roar of flame bellowing out from the infinite industry of man and his attempt to create an iron monster that will devour him. Uh, that's the open heart. You got it? They don't belch. They do other things. However, they were doing it that afternoon. The wind was blowing. And right there next to us, uh, these workmen arrived one afternoon in this vacant lot where we had played many a game of baseball, pass tag. We'd played football. We had looked for lost golf balls. Are there any lost golf ball looker-forers out there? I, I spent one whole summer in my 13th year earning a measly living looking for golf balls at this golf course <laughs> Out, uh, outside of town. Every morning, I would, I would ride to the golf course with a, with a basket, and uh, Schwartz would go with me, and we would spend the entire afternoon in the boondocks chasing snakes and bats. I'm surprised that there's a great interest in bats these days. Of course, it's a phony bat. That's not a real bat. There's a, there's a vast uh, world of difference between being interested in Batman and bats tell you, there's, there's uh, something... If you've been around bats, haven't you, Carney? You've seen them. Well, there's not much camp about them, really. Now, some bats can be pretty mean, you know. That's right. They had a terrible temper and bad-looking, too. They're just bad-looking people, like bad head. Bad. Those bats are bad. And uh, so we would spend our, our afternoons, me and Flick and Schwartz, beating our way through the boondocks with a, with a gunny sack, and uh, diving into the water hazards. Have you ever swum underwater in a water hazard looking for golf balls? You know, the, the guys that hit them into the... Every time I watch on TV and I see Arnold Palmer and I see all these great golfers uh, playing golf on Saturday and on Sunday, they play TV game, golf all the time. Are those guys really playing golf or is that just a big tape they use? Is that a real golf match or is that thing just taped in front of a, you know, a rear screen projector? And, and you know Arnie keeps swinging, and Nicklaus keeps. They keep saying they keep playing the same tournament over and over and over again. It's always very important, and it's always for the highest money ever played for every week. And so they play over and over. And every time I see that type of golfer, I get bugged because they don't hit it in the water enough. And as an old golf ball hunter, I can see these guys were taking the bread out of my very mouth. You know, that's the kind of golfer a golf ball, uh, a golf ball roach. We used to call them golf ball roaches. Yeah, that's the kid that goes out and looks for golf balls, steals golf balls. We used to sometimes, you know, it was funny. Sometimes we'd hide on the other side of a hill uh, in the the middle of the fairway. And they hear, and you should see me. I I used to snag many a golf ball before they even hit the ground. Oh, yeah. And uh, about 10 minutes later, you see this guy. He's beating around in the bush. He can't figure it out what. You know, he hit it right down the fairway, and he can't find his ball. You know, there's nothing there. There's just about eight kids lying in the bushes. And I'd come wandering, and I'd say, hey, mister, I found a golf ball. Is your name uh, Schmidlap? It's a Schmidlap on the side. And he says, yeah, that's mine. I say, half a buck. And so then I would go back to my little trap, and I'd wait. I'd hear, I'd out there with my fielder schmidt and start it all over again. <laughs> that's how a lot of guys learn to really field, you know. It's not so easy fielding a guy that's, that's got a bad slice. You ought to try to feel the slice sometime with a Smith boy on a good 250-yard slice. I'll tell you, right between the eyes some days, you know. But we'd hide. And then another thing we used to do, we'd go way in late in the day. You see, when the golfers are, are, are just about through, the last duffers have left, we would sneak out and start swimming underwater and looking for golf balls in the dark, in the water hazard. And on the bottom, there are all these old tires and old... Rusted barrels and beer cans and bullheads and junk. And you'd see those golf balls glowing like pearls in the darkness under there. Oh, what an exciting sight. Ah, oh, boy, when you come across, you come across a mint condition crow flight, you know, or, or, uh, or a medalist, a mint condition, a cushionet, which is a really good ball. And once in a while, you'd, you'd be swimming underwater and you'd come across these five for quarter specials. These crummy. You just think, oh, what a cheapskate! What a cheapskate hitting this kind of a ball into the water hazard at this this kind of a country club. Oh, wow! And so that's the kind of life, you know. Next door to us was this was this empty field where we'd look for balls and golf balls and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, these guys arrived and they start digging holes and they start pounding stakes in the ground. It was the first the first beginnings of the foundation of MD's folly. And as the days went by, we would be out there watching them. You know, the kids watching this house going up. You ever seen a house going up? There's a guy with a big plans walking around. He's got a hat in the back of his head and buttons on the side and a sweatshirt and he's walking around with the transit and the, the, you know, the, the surveyor and the carpenters and they're working away. Well, we could not believe it. After about three days, this was the this was the, the, the weirdest-looking house we ever saw. They put up, instead of the kind of house that we had, you know, the square, nothing, crummy little house that everybody lived in around there, just a square little wooden house with a with a porch and a bunch of uh, scraggly bushes around the side, this is a house that's flat, a flat, low house. Well, they built the house. They built the frame you know, with the wood, you see. The floor, concrete floor, we're out there. Because We were very interested in this because whenever a new house went up, this was a new place where you could steal two by fours. It was a new place where you could steal nails and uh, especially you could steal tar paper. That's the one thing we wanted. You know, the tar paper they use on the roofs, we'd steal that stuff to make our caves and junk. with. We're always out there sniping tar paper and little cans of paint, anything we could find laying around. We're always sniping this place. Well, this place didn't have any tar paper. And not only that, they did not have that clapper. You know, the stuff that they nail on the side? No clapper at all. Just a frame they put up there. Nothing else. They didn't bring anything else. And so there was a, a rumor began to float around the neighborhood that they were building a miniature airplane hangar. That looked like an airplane hangar. Built by this guy named M.D., whom we had never seen before. He didn't show. It was just the people there working, and they kept saying Mr. Emdy's building it. Well... Gradually this thing began to evolve and about six weeks after the first afternoon, after the first stakes were driven, there stood in our neighborhood a genuine. Now I don't know how to express this exactly because you'd have to see the rest of the neighborhood to appreciate what this looked like. It was orange to begin with. It was stucco. Nobody ever built anything of stucco in our neighborhood. Everything was built out of wood or red brick. You know, the kind of red brick you get at the lumber yard used and has tar hanging on it. Everything was brick or wood. This was stucco. You know what, you know what stucco is? You've seen stucco? I bet a lot of people don't know, know, know what is it, stucco, you know? They don't. Stucco is a kind of adobe. It's a curious kind of stuff. And this was brilliant orange. Brilliant orange stucco. A low, flat house. And it had French windows that rose from the ground all the way up to the base of the roof, right to the base of the eaves. And it had green ironwork and scrollwork all over the front of it. And right directly in the middle of this thing, right smack in the middle of it, was a tower, a little tower, that had a a peaked roof, and on the top of the peaked roof was a golden statue. Now, (laughs) you know... Uh, it had it had, a, it had a tower, and it had curved arched windows with a kind of sunken in. You know how the pictures of the Alamo? This place was literally a hacienda. It was a hacienda from some place down way in the in the furthest south portions of Mexico. They even had fake beams built out on the side, you know, green wood sticking out, painted green. It was fantastic! And then after this stuff was put on. Have you ever seen them put stucco on? They put it on. Not uh, this was sticky. It was all sticky. It was. It wasn't stucco that that was smooth like plaster. It had all kinds of millions of little uh, burrs sticking out of it. It was it was rough, very rough. Because I'll never forget a couple of times chasing a foul ball next to Emby's house and getting impaled. You know, you run into this thing and oh boy, it's like it's like running full blast into an emery wheel and it's all the stuff all over. Then they went around. One afternoon, with me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner watching, absolutely unbelieving, the the guy that put the stucco on, he and his assistant walked around, and they had two pails. And in the pails were pebbles. They had a big pail, you know the kind of pebbles that you see at the bottom of fish bowls? Green and blue and yellow. And the sparkly, little sparkly things and stuff. Little pieces of ground glass. And here was this wet stucco. They walked around and they threw the pebbles up into the stucco. They just threw it up and it would stick, you know. They throw. What? And my mother is peering out. Mrs. Bruner's looking out. You know, poor old Mrs. Bruner in that tumble down house she lived next door on the other side. Mrs. Bruner with her 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 clutching sweaty volume of true stories and her true romances, and her husband lying out on the back porch drunk. And all those clothes poles leaning crazily, and the, the clothes lines crisscrossing the sky. There, growing right next to us, was a Spanish hacienda with sparkles all over it—yellow, green, blue sparkles all over it—with a tower on top of it. And already the spatsies were moving in. They saw this tower, you know, the tower was just kind of a dummy tower up on the top. I'll tell you, it looked like, if you can imagine, it looked like a pop version of Howard Johnson. Weird place. Well, it's it's very hard to to tell you just what kind of a reaction this made. Let's put it on this basis. If if you can imagine somebody in your neighborhood, let's say you live in uh, Darien, or let's say you live in Teaneck, or Wooster, or someplace can you imagine somebody in your neighborhood building a family-sized model of the Taj Mahal in your neighborhood would't it cause a little talk a little excitement a little sniping <laughs> a few slings and arrows of of uh, sarcasm and so on well this family moved in and and they we, there were a new family came in Melvin MD mr. MD and his kid Melvin and, uh, he was, he, they were rich. He was kind of a rich kid. This is a family house. They built this house. They were rich. Nobody ever built a house in that neighborhood. I mean, the, we all rented. Everybody sort of lived in these houses. But I never, you know, this is built in here. The MD family moved in. They had this dog. It was the first French poodle ever seen in northern Indiana. And at first, everybody thought it was some kind of a monkey. Uh, yeah, it was a funny-looking dog. A had little things, a little the tuft on the tail and all that funny look in the eye. And, and Zero, living on the other side, who was Bruner's dog, Zero's dog went into shock for about a month after he saw his first French poodle. And the whole city took this look at this French poodle. You could hear him moaning under the porch by the hour. And, uh, well, all of a sudden, in the middle of this this big thing, the MD family was not in there two weeks when they hurriedly moved out. And there was a rumor that Mr. Emdy was a bookie. The rumors spread all over the neighborhood that he was in some kind of, uh, some underground activity. That he was some kind of a crook. And they were after him. And they moved out. They were gone. In the night, they left. That was it. And there stood a Spanish hacienda, empty. One month went by. Two months went by. And the... Golden stucco started to get a little brown, started to get a little dirty. Three months went by, six months went by, and at the window, it's all dusty, is this sign that says for rent. MD's folly was now for rent. And the people somehow related this strange house with the evil that had befallen MD. I said, yeah, you see? Hey, the people, are, yeah, kooks. They're moving in, they're kooks. They, you know, they catch up with them guys. They always catch up with that kind eventually. And the windows got dirtier and dirtier. And then one by one, kids started to throw rocks through them. And then one afternoon, a year or so later, in moved the Bodkin family. The Bodkin family was from Corbin, Kentucky. The Bodkin family chewed tobacco for breakfast. They made whiskey in the basement. The Bodkin family had not worn a pair of shoes till they got north of the Ohio River. And they were now wearing their first pair, kids' tennis shoes. They sat there and looked out of those French windows and threw whiskey bottles out of the yard. Yelled and hollered all night long. The stucco had cracks all over the side of it. <laughs> and I'll never forget Iona Pearl Bodkin, the girl. The night that they brought Iona Pearl home in a squad car. Threw her in the front door, the old man came running out with a shotgun and took two shots at the squad cars that disappeared down the street. Yes, Endy's Folly, Bodkin's victory. There it was, all wrapped up in a vacant lot that used to harbor nothing but crickets and lost golf balls and a few stickers and a few used band-aids. Wherever you are tonight, oh, folly builder, stick with it. You're the last of the dreamers, and man would be nothing without you. Keep fighting.
1: And you can see photos of MD's folly at the flicklives.com website, www.flicklives.com. And you can hear more Gene Shepard next week on this program or on May 22nd, Wednesday, 7 to midnight. Big Marathon Fun Drive Special uh, with special guests we will be here. Gene Bergman has agreed to come on the program that evening. And uh, don't forget Sunday night, 7 or 7.30 to midnight or something, Golden Age of Radio Marathon Special as well. That's this coming Sunday. Bring your credit cards. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas?